The story is circulating about Leah Thomas. Leah has not rolled back what she gained in male puberty. I didn't like the fact that she was the target of this. It was a lot of right-wing news outlets that were covering Leah. We're at the University of Pennsylvania right now. Here's what's happening. There is a guy destroying uh, the girls' uh, race times, their records. Of course, there's tons of hate and very cruel commentary online, and um, and I know that she's uh, she's not reading it. For for Leah, it's purely been a question of can I be allowed to do what I love doing while still being who I truly am. After all the discussion, the anonymous comments, the statements, the debate, all centered around Leah Thomas. It's all about stopwatches and starters blocks now. The horn will sound, and it's time to get down. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And today, the next stage begins for University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas. The senior from Austin, Texas, begins competition now through Saturday at the Ivy League Championships on the campus of Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is one of two transgender student-athletes set to do battle. The other is sprint specialist Isaac Henning from Yale. Both have a chance at making some NCAA history. We've heard a great deal about Thomas's story and the continuing debate surrounding her participation that's impacted a debate that extends to state legislatures, all the way up to the next run for the White House. A win by Thomas or Hennig this weekend would add to the number of NCAA Division I conference champions who are transgender. So far, there's been only one. Juniper Eastwood, track athlete at the University of Montana. She won the mile at the 2020 Big Sky Conference Indoor Track Championships. Thomas is eyeing an even bigger target because she holds two automatic qualifying marks for the NCAA Division I National Championships next month in Atlanta. She has a chance to be the first transgender student-athlete in NCAA history to win a Division I national title, and the second to do so overall. Joining CeCe Telfer, the Division II champion in the 400-meter hurdles, in 2019, representing Franklin Pierce University of New Hampshire. In the middle of all this are shifting regulations. The NCAA scrapped a 10-year-old policy in the space of two months of heated media against Thomas and nearly adopted a surprise bolt from the blue by USA Swimming that would have eliminated Thomas completely. The NCAA backed away from that stance last week, reverting to its original policy change they made on January 19th. But what to make of the shifting rules and the controversy within? Well, we have someone coming on who can make heads or tails of it. Roger Pelkey Jr. is an environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado. He holds a Ph.D. in political science and has an expertise in the study of sports governance. He's also the author of the Honest Broker newsletter. He's taken time to join us to help make heads or tails of what's to come and what may be next. From the University of Colorado Boulder, we're beaming him up. Roger Pelkey Jr., Energize. Professor, it's an honor as a, someone who reads The Honest Broker to have you here in the transporter room. 
Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get into the main thrust of the conversation, you've had quite a lot to say on the Melieva situation in Beijing with the figure skater. What? How? Di- how badly did the IOC mess this up? How badly did the ISU mess this up? Yeah, this has been a, a disaster from from the get go. Um, everyone has to remember at the center of this is a 15 year old girl, um, a child. And uh, apparently she tested positive uh, or a test was administered on Christmas Day. Took them 45 days to get it to uh, the IOC after she had competed in the team's competition. That's your first sign there's a problem. Um, That's way over the limit for what WADA is allowed to do. Um, Her team is being investigated. Um, And the latest is that the IOC has said that they're not going to have a podium presentation for any of the athletes. So the IOC is choosing to punish all figure skaters participating in the event. Um, so it's just a mess, and it's not over yet. Will there be changes? What will this look like after Beijing as we head on to Paris and head on to Milan? Uh, WADA, which governs anti-doping, um, did an important thing. They created a, a new category called protected persons. Um, these, are, these are people like children or people with, um, who, who don't have the, the capacity to understand anti-doping rules. Um, for whom they 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 follow different rules, and this is the first uh, Olympics under which uh, these rules are being applied, and this is really the first instance. Um, and we're learning that they're not really fully fleshed out as much as they should be. So, so those rules will be tightened up, and hopefully, um, will protect children even further uh, in the future. Um, a big thing that's got to come out of this is, is, you know, does does WADA have responsibility for following its own rules? Um, there is a time limit on when a test is taken and the sample has to be returned. Um, it was way over the limit in this case. And so if WADA expects athletes to have what's called strict liability, um, athletes should have the uh, expectation that WADA has strict liability. So, And then there's also the issue of the IOC making up rules um, for Valieva in, during the Olympics. And that is certainly... Um, got to be raised questions about that. So, so there's a lot of, of governance issues that are going to have to be addressed, uh, even as this case you know, won't be resolved anytime soon because she still has a hearing before the Court of Arbitration for Sport on the original doping allegation. So, so this will drag on for a long time. Well, now we're going to go from China to Cambridge, Massachusetts. As we're talking right now, Professor, the Ivy League Swimming and Diving Championships have started and Leah, a certain swimmer who's gained a little bit of notoriety, a certain Leah Thomas at the University of Pennsylvania will be competing this week. General thoughts from the regulatory point of view on how this situation has played out in regards to the NCAA and USA swimming. In your view, what have they done right? What have they done wrong? What needs to improve? What needs to change? It, it's really, I think, unfortunate that that in this or you know any other area that that governance and rules and regulations are viewed through the lens of a single athlete. So I think from from the outset, um, Leah Thomas has uh, followed all of the rules to the letter. She hasn't done anything wrong, um, and it's fine if people want to debate and discuss rules, regulations, policies. Uh, but to put her at the center of it, um, I think number one is it's just improper. Um, there's plenty of time after the NCAA championships at any time to open up these issues and have a discussion. So the first thing is hard cases make for bad policy 
and bad regulation, especially when you're dealing with it in real time. Um, and let me say, you know, from my observations, there's certainly some people participating in the debate whose sole goal is to, is to get Leah Thomas out of the competition, which I think is unethical and improper for any athlete following the rules. Um, I do think the NCAA um, made a mistake in uh, all of a sudden in January saying they were going to change their rules um, and to defer to the national governing body for swimming. Um, and then there was a hierarchy. It was going to go to the, the International Federation and if, after that to the 2015 IOC rules. Um, there was no need to jump in. And, you know, the NCAA finally made the right decisions uh, and said, we're going to keep our existing rules in place. So I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of questions that can be raised about how the issue is addressed, which I think is completely separate from, um, you know, going forward under the new IOC fairness framework. Um, how do we implement rules um, that that are are fair, that guarantee inclusion and, and protect athlete safety? Uh, plenty of room for discussion and debate there, but to center it on one athlete, uh, I think, is improper. Now. Over these last few days, you've been jousting with someone who's been a voice in the discussion from the other way. Nancy Hawks at Maycar, the head of the, of the Cisgender Women's Sports Policy Working Group. And there's a question that you've had on Twitter. Can you please list and link 12 studies of Leah Thomas? Is that the prime example that you're talking about here, that everything has been geared towards one athlete? Now, why exactly in your mind is that improper for the yes. people who, who, who don't, who may not understand or who will still say this is unfair. This is unfair in your mind. Why is this improper? Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously improper because uh, she's following the rules and, you know, sport is just a whole constructed place where we play games. Um, we make up the rules and uh, we might not like the rules, um, but the rules are what the rules are. And she came to, um, to, to swimming at Penn um, and is following the rules, hasn't broken any rules. So, so efforts to try to remove her from the playing field, from the swimming pool, so to speak, um, I think are entirely improper um, and uh, reflect to me more of a political orientation than a respect for um, athletes and athlete rights. In your mind, how should a governing body go about making these rules after a period of review? Yeah. What should, in your mind, what would be an ethical way and a fair way of building a new set of regulations? So I have to say, and you know, I, 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 a few minutes ago, I gave the IOC some stick for how it's handled the, the, the doping in Beijing. Now I'm going to give the IOC some praise. The, the, the fairness framework that it came up with late last year, um, which, which articulates a number of principles for how regulations should be put in place, recognizing that um, inclusion is a priority. It's, it's a non-negotiable priority. But the exact detail of how inclusion is achieved requires some consideration and contextuality. And the IOC went in, I think, in a completely proper direction in saying, hey, there's going to be no set of regulations that's going to govern equestrian and shooting and archery and track and field and rugby. Each sport has to go and develop its own rules underneath this larger framework. 
So I think the framework, which was developed based on a lot of consultations with athletes, with administrators, with others, um, is a perfectly legitimate and thoughtful ethical starting point for how these uh, rules and regulations are going to be developed and implemented in the context of, of individual elite Olympic sports. If you had a chance to have a face-to-face sit down with Nancy Hoggs at Maycar, where would you tell her she's missing the mark in all this? If she yeah. is missing the mark in all this. Yeah, I've met Nancy. And, and, and you know, the first place to start is Nancy's advocacy and work um, in the area of safe sport and protecting, um, in particular, female athletes, uh, but really all athletes from, from uh, sexual predators and sexual abuse um, is really notable. And so that's, you know, that's one reason I'm disappointed to find myself on the opposite side of, of her on, on this particular issue. Um, but the reality is um, it is never acceptable to ban or exclude an individual from participating in an area of society where they are perfectly legitimate and recognized to do so based on their physical characteristics. I don't care if it's their skin color. Um, it, I don't care if it's their chromosomes. Um, there has to be, and this is, I mean, there's well-established law in the Paralympics um, and the rights of disabled people is, is, is probably the most notable example. There has to be reasonable accommodations made for inclusion. That doesn't mean anything goes. It means that we have to look carefully at what the criteria of inclusion are. So. I would tell Nancy and anyone else who, who is of the view that we need a blanket ban um, of trans athletes or trans women from women's competition, um, you got your head wrong. You're, you're starting from the wrong place. If you're starting to think, how can we exclude these people? That's prejudice and discrimination. The starting point has to be, all right, what are those re- reasonable accommodations we can make to maximize inclusion to the extent possible, given we, there are other uh, values at stake. Fairness in competition. Um, if LeBron James said, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm transitioning to, to a woman, and I, then I want to try my hand at the WNBA, I mean, I think everyone would probably say, well, that's probably not fair because <laughs> you're LeBron James. So, so the, I think there are cases where... Um, you know, just like there's there's a, a Paralympian named Blake Leeper from California. Runs he's an amputee, double amputee. Runs on on prostheses. Um, he wanted to compete in Tokyo last year, and uh, he went before the court of arbitration for sport. They evaluated him. They evaluated the length of his his cheetah blades, and they said, "Our judgment is that your inclusion would be unfair." But and this is the important thing, but. Here are the conditions under which you can participate. So, so there has to be provided a route for inclusion, um, again, under this notion of what are reasonable accommodations. In many things you write for the Honest Broker newsletter, it's that we have to think outside of the box and think differently on the problems that we face. What is the biggest thing that seems to block these alternatives from even getting a hearing? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is this is, um, I mean, this is the unfortunate part of this issue is that it's not just a sport issue; it's a societal issue, it's a cultural issue, it's a it's a political issue, and and you know, the reality is, 
elite sport trying to make these decisions, <coughs> excuse me, sits in the context of debates around the world, um, really, um, but also, you know, here in the United States over um, not just trans athletes, but the legitimacy, legitimacy of trans individuals at all. So, so for me, um, the biggest obstacle is that there are many people who don't see this as, oh, it's a sport regulatory issue. They say, oh, here's a prominent issue where we can have our political fight and get a lot of attention. So, for example, South Dakota, um, Go Governor Nome there uh, last week signed a bill um, banning trans athletes uh, for participating. Um, everyone has to participate in the um, category of what their birth certificate says. Um, South Dakota has had several, I think the number of several hundred thousand high school students um, over the last 10 years, one trans athlete. Um, it, it's not like that was uh, one of the most pressing issues in the state of South Dakota um, and why it, it got so much political attention um, was because it's a, it's a convenient wage issue. Um, it divides Americans. So, so I think that the biggest obstacle to having a reasoned discussion of this is just the, the, the politics in which it sits. Now, let's say the Pac-12 or the NCAA makes that same call. Would you want to sit in on it? Absolutely. I mean, I work at a university, so I'm a stakeholder in the, in the NCAA. Um, NCAA does not have a great track record in um, athlete rights, strictly related to compensation issues. But I think, you know, to date, um, we have to give the NCAA some credit, uh, particularly, you know, the recent decision to reject the U.S. swimming um, proposal that would have banned Leah Thomas. So the NCAA has had a, um, you know, a, a pretty good track record of supporting inclusion. I don't think they have all the rules quite right yet, and it remains to be seen how they will implement, you know, this, this sport-specific set of policies that are, you know, derived from the international federations or the NGBs. Um, but, but so far their track record has been a positive one. Well, I'm looking forward, no matter which way the world turns of having your voice being a part of that discussion, professor Roger Pelkey Jr. Thank you for joining us on the transporter room. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Great discussion. Thank you. I'm going to beam you back down to Boulder and coming up next, our Olympic update. Who's doing what and how's Team LGBTQ doing? In the Olympic update, Team LGBTQ got medal number two. And it was Guillaume Cizoron of France alongside partner Gabriela Papadakis in ice dancing. They got the gold medal. They called it the revenge tour from after getting the silver in Pyeongchang here in Beijing. They have a gold medal. Now, what does that do for Team LGBTQ in the medal count? Well, if you're going by the number of golds, currently Team LGBTQ is in a log jam with those two gold medals in a tie for 11th. Now, in total medals, the two golds are all Team LGBTQ has so far in these Olympics, but there are more chances to get more golds as we head into the stretch drive of these games. They're currently tied for 19th in total medals. But in the Carly Olympic Index, they're tied for 17th with Finland on 10 points. Remember, five points for gold, 
three points for silver, one point for bronze. Up front, Norway. They lead in total medals, they lead in the most golds, and they lead in the Carly Index with 154 points, followed by Germany in second, they have 66, and Wuku's moved up. The USA, they moved up from being somewhere in the teens at the start of these games to now being a solid third in the Carly Index on 65 points, followed by Austria in fourth on 52, and in fifth is Russia with 50 rounding out that top six to the Netherlands with 45. But those numbers are bound to change as we head into the final days of the Winter Olympics. The situation regarding Leah Thomas and the issues of equity and inclusion aren't just questions for now. They've been questions long before now in the world of sport. And now we're going to beam up somebody who can give us a broader historical perspective and how it all ties together to now. Dr. Johanna Mellis is a professor at Yersinius College. In another time, they were a competitive Division I swimmer at the College of Charleston. And along the way, they've learned a lot about sports and how all these issues collide and intersect. Beaming up from Yersinius College, Dr. Johanna Mellis, Energize. Hey everyone, so glad to be here. Carly, it's really nice to to chat with you and be on, on your show after uh, you are on ours, which will hopefully that our episode with you will come out soon from the end of sport. If you don't know End of Sports Podcast, Dr. Mellis is a one of the hosts of it. And there's if you want to get sports from a very different perspective, from historical perspectives, from equity perspectives. And the sports podcast is a regular for me. I think it should be a regular for you as well. But Dr. Mellis, as we're speaking right now, Leah Thomas may be standing in the starting block at the Ivy League championships. Now, there's been a lot of talk in regards to this issue. And some people think that this issue is new, but it's not. The, the his, there's, there's a long history within international sport of people trying to define who is quote unquote, like a real woman or a real female athlete, And sort of, um, there's been a, a belief amongst many, many people that there are quote unquote, like secret men. Um, and I put that in scare quotes that are trying to infiltrate, um, uh, the purity of women's sport, a female sport and sort of, um, and in, in infiltrate in order to win. Um, so, and a lot of the history that I'm going to talk about comes from, there's this really fantastic sport historian named Lindsay Parks Piper, who has done phenomenal work to trace, um, the history of gender verification tests and, and gender slash sex ver verification tests, uh, depending on what you're talking about. And, um, some of her work shows that a lot of these questions have existed basically since the international Olympic committee first started and first started allowing female athletes to participate in the Olympic games. Um, and a lot of historians have showed this, that from the beginning, the IOC founders did not want women to compete in the Olympic games because, um, they believed all kinds of sexist ideas about, you know, sports will make women be masculine and they'll make them be quote unquote more manly. And we don't want that because we want our women 
to be feminine. We want them to be mothers. We want them to be sex objects to Agalat, et cetera. And so there's been this long history of, of trying to control first to exclude, and then later to control the female athletes who were allowed to be in the, in the Olympic games. And the IOC essentially begrudgingly allows women, um, like in, in large numbers to participate in the Olympic games in the 1920s. And this is because Alice Milia and a few who was a French woman and a few other uh, sports enthusiasts, they started their own women's Olympic games. And then the IOC kind of said, hold on, we want a part of this pie. You know, we want to be able to make money off of this. We, <laughs> we, we want to be the ones to control it. And so um, to essentially avoid competition with this women's Olympic games, the IOC decides to fold in and expand their Olympic offerings to include women, right? So they did not do it in an attempt to be inclusive. They did it in order to avoid losing out. And, and so that is really the framework. So in my sport history classes that I've been teaching the last few years, that is kind of the fr- one of the frameworks I've been using to sort of talk through that women's bodies have always been subject to exclusion and control and people trying to dictate who is a quote unquote real feminine woman and who is not. Um, and then in the 1960s, uh, from my understanding, is, is when we first start to see the first like real tests instituted for international the naked, competitions. The naked parades. That's what we're talking yes. about right now. That's right. That's when we start to see like genital exams, which are absolutely disgusting. I mean, just absolutely disgusting of, of, of asking women to parade around naked, to have doctors inspect their private parts, which is like so violating. I cannot even imagine how violating that is. Um, now, how and, does all, now, I'm just wondering, how does this all tie in, in your view, to what you're seeing in the landscape in regards to Leah Thomas? I see it as all along um, the same continuum of trying to control what kinds of women are allowed to participate in international sport. So initially, I mean, the fear has always been for a very, very long time that, that, that men are masquerading or hiding themselves and trying to... Pr- present themselves as women in participating in sport. And I think that's a direct um, correlation to what we see now with, with Leah Thomas and with other, sorry, with the cisgender reactions to Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas is not the issue. It's the cis people um, like myself who have the issue. One person you've crossed swords with here and there is Nancy Hogshead Maycar, hmm. the head of the cisgender women's sports policy working group. Yes, cisgender. I know it's not the real title. Cisgender is my word. But I'm curious. Nancy comes from a a particular position that Leah has not mitigated enough and that it is unfair. You also were a competitive swimmer at the collegiate level at College Charleston. What's your take on that perception and on that contention that Leah it's unfair for her to, for example, compete this week at Ivy League championships. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's such a slippery slope and that's why it's so dangerous. And I, and I say that and I'll pull from some of my experiences, not to, I'm not asking for sympathy from listeners. And I say this on my own podcast, I'm not asking for sympathy, but to sort of lay out that there is a, a real point of solidarity that could be had between cisgender and transgender female athletes um, rather than uh, pitting them against one another, which is what she does and what many other people do. 
actually our, inter- our interests are very much aligned uh, or they should be. And that's how I think that's how I think we need to be seeing it. Um, so throughout my swimming career, both when I swam club um, growing up and then when I swim in college, there were always comments about my body and whether I looked feminine enough. I mean, that it's like a constant barrage of, you know, your shoulders are really broad. You look like a man um, or, you know, your, your boobs are not very big. So therefore you must actually not be um, a correct woman because you haven't hit puberty the way maybe other, some other female summers are, are the way we would like you to. And, and that is all, um, encapsulated in all the sexism, all the misogyny within swimming, which is really, really rife in sport. There's a long history of sexual harassment and sexual abuse that, that she knows about that the, that the, um, IOC knows about that USA swimming knows about USA swimming does not want to deal with it. Um, but I think these stem from the same issues. And, um, so anyway, so I felt like my body was really like constantly under attack for not being quote unquote feminine enough. I sadly, and I will admit this. I sadly believed a lot of these things. I sadly said some of these things about myself, about other people. So when I think back on it, I really am really disgusted and quite ashamed with myself for telling myself, for example, I don't want to look manly. So therefore I don't want to do these birds or I don't want to lift weights as heavily as I could, which is really ridiculous. I said and thought things about other people, which I, like I said, I really, really am disgusted with myself for it. Um, this was the atmosphere that I was raised within and was never, ever taught differently. Um, you know, I had a coach and, and my club team who pointed out one time that my suit was see-through and rather than like pulling me aside and telling me like, Hey, this is what, this is a male coach rather than telling me, Hey, your suit is see-through you should change into something else. He pointed it out to my team on the side of the pool. And so they're all staring at me and they can apparently see my nipples and stuff on the side of the pool, like disgusting, absolutely disgusting behavior that now would absolutely not be, well, I would hope would not be tolerated, but at the time there was like no reporting mechanism that I knew of. Um, and you know, that scrutiny of women's bodies and, and men certainly receive a lot of scrutiny too. So I'm not sure trying to say it's a women's issue, but I think we see that very similarly with, with Leah Thomas, with examining her exact features and, and also saying, you know, you are not feminine enough. And, and that, I think that specific argument that she has not quote unquote mitigated whatever whatever she got out of going through puberty. The thing is, is that that line a has not been scientific. Well, you know, it's not been scientifically proven, you know, there's no consensus consensus about what that, where that line is. And if we even have one, had one, right. It wouldn't just be transgender women who would maybe who, who might potentially be crossing that line, right. Cis women such as myself might potentially be crossing whatever arbitrary line they come up with. And that's the thing is it's really arbitrary. Um, and so I think it's an incredibly dangerous slippery slope because it wouldn't just put trans uh, female athletes under the microscope. It would absolutely put cis female athletes such as myself under the microscope too. And I think that's why I really strongly think that there is a lot of unity that could be had between cisgender female athletes who dominate the sport, not Leah Thomas, not trans athletes. But again, I think there's a lot of unity to be had here to fight against transphobia, to fight against the sexism, to fight against the misogyny, fight against the sexual abuse. And so someone such as Nancy Hogshead Maker, who has fought against 
the, the patriarchy who has fought against sexism, misogyny, and sexual abuse. For her to turn her back on trans female athletes is just, it's really disgusting. About those NCAA regulations that have changed, as someone who was a student athlete, what's your thoughts on them? Um, this is about the NCAA kicking the can down the road. <laughs> if you want yeah. to call it that, feel free. Yeah. What were your thoughts on, or, well, what were your thoughts on that? It, it seems to make sense from what I understand from people that like they're, 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 that, that what, that there's no sort of policy that like one shoe that fits all for every single sport um, that I understand. So I, I do get the idea of sort of like allowing the different sports to figure out what works for them. But I think that the, the timing of when they announced it and especially the pressure under which the NCAA clearly succumbed to which the NCAA clearly faced a lot of pressure, especially within the swimming lobby, which for me, I'm like, no one, like, I wish more people cared about swimming, but people frankly don't. So like, that's, you know, the whole issue is that a lot of people actually don't care about swimming. They don't care about cis swimmers. They don't care about trans swimmers. So it's all just a political ploy. And you talked about that on our show, um, but they clearly succumb to political pressure and seem to sort of like, implement or pass this policy in, in, a, in a rushed way without like concrete parameters to say, you know, like when, you know, that the, the governing body should implement their policies after the season is over, for example, right? Like they didn't set up some of these mechanisms that I think could have been helpful and said, they just sort of said, okay, we're going to give it to you to, to settle so that we don't have to deal with it. I think that's what they want to do. They wanted to decentralize this issue and kind of put the burden on other people um, but the reality is that the, you know, the national governing bodies of sport, for example, like swimming, like they're, they're not up to date on, on all these issues. They're not up to date on the science or not up to date on anything. And USA Swimming, you know, refused to ban Cleek Keller, who stormed the Capitol January 6th, who was Olympic summer. They refused to ban him. So like USA Swimming is so conservative and they've always been very conservative, which is why they want to deal with their issues with sexual, with rampant sexual abuse that's still ongoing. Um, so then to, ex to, to expect a, a body like USA Swimming to come up with any kind of policy that's going to really be centered in trans women, trans female athletes health, for example, just boggles the mind. Like, of course, they weren't going to do that. So I think the ends of in civil policy, while there was seemed to have been some decent intentions behind it, the way they did it did not take into account all these other factors, which which was disappointing. Certainly, I mean, thankfully, NCAA did not accept, or, or is the NCAA is sort of refusing to adopt USA Swimming's policy for now, which is really good. So there, I think there's a, a victory for Leah Thomas for NCAA championships, which are coming up. Um, but it's, I can't, you know, it's been such a mess and I cannot imagine the stress that she's been under. I, I really can't imagine what that feels like for her. What is your biggest concern for Leah going forward? Because there's another meet to come. And that's the big one in Atlanta in March. March Madness will be in a pool. If you were, say, Leah's teammate, what would you tell her going into that meet? I mean, I would tell her, I support you. I'm going to be cheering for you every step of the way. Let me know what you need from me. Um, that's what I would do, which just really center whatever it is that she wants. And she may not know what she wants or needs. And, and I, maybe she does. I hope she does. But I imagine that it's been such 
a traumatic onslaught. I mean, who is prepared for dealing with attacks from the swimming press, um, both international and domestic from, you know, the GOP, from Fox News and Tucker Carlson to even people like Nancy Hogshead Maker, who ostensibly are there to protect women. I mean, I cannot imagine how traumatic that's been. So if I were her teammate, I would say, I support you. I'm going to cheer for you on the sidelines. Let me know what you need for me. Um, I'm here for you to vent. I'm here for you to cry if you need to. You know, that's that's what I would do um, and just be her loudest, che- loudest cheerleader and support her. Um, now I've never been to NCAAs. I didn't, I, I got like, I was, a, I was a couple second, I was, a, I don't know, some time off of an NCAA B cut. So I never, you know, even had the, the opportunity to go, but I mean, you can imagine, I mean, a sport like swimming, you, you swim all year round and swimmers swim all year round, basically from the time that they start club swimming. It's, it's not like a one season sport. Um, whereas, I mean, at the college level, you know, the season runs from September to February or March, March, if you, if you go to NCAAs, but then you, you swim the rest of the year and you've been swimming, you're, you've been swimming all year round with maybe a couple weeks break here and there, probably since you were 12 or 13 or 14. So, you know, there's no real break from the sport except for like a brief, a brief breather and, so you're preparing for it your whole life. And so I just, you know, to prepare for a huge meet like NCAAs is already stressful enough. And you're thinking back like to every single practice that you went to, you're thinking back to every morning practice when you woke up, was there a day when maybe you overslept your alarm or maybe a day when you were sick and you didn't go to practice. And then you're wondering, should I have gone? Like is missing that one practice going to impact my training, which of course it's not, but like you do, you know, you, you gaslight yourself. And you think about all these things. So, you know, in terms of the mental preparation, you know, just being a cisgender athlete, the preparation is enormous and can feel really, really overwhelming. And it's very easy to psych yourself out. So then to throw in all of this public pressure, which all of this public pressure, I mean, most swimmers that go to the Olympic Games in the US don't even face this anywhere close to this sort of media onslaught because. The, the media doesn't pay attention to swimming. So I think that's also that something that's that a uh, unique pressure that she's facing is that very few U.S. Um, swimmers have ever felt anything close to this amount of media pressure, not to mention this kind of media pressure. As John McLaughlin would say, exit question. If Leah Thomas wins the national championship, how is that going to look? to you in the landscape in regards to the media, in regards to perceptions and in regards to regulations. I'd be excited for her. I would be, I would be thrilled for her. Um, Her hard work would pay off and she persevered and in a, in a moment with really impossible, just impossible pressure. Um, Sadly, I feel like um, not everyone would have that really action. Um, and I think most people due to their, um, ill-informed, uh, uninformed beliefs about cis, uh, cisgender athletes, trans athletes, testosterone, all these things that people think that they're very knowledge about, but actually like not, they, they're not because we're all a lot. Most of us, I think are miseducated about these issues. I think they would see her winning. They would choose to see her winning 
as she's a cheater, quote unquote cheater, that she's quote unquote stealing opportunities from quote unquote real women. And I really want to put all these things in square quotes because these are all chosen beliefs that people have. Um, So I would be really, really excited for her. And I would be, I would be worried about how people would choose to perceive her victory. And I kind of seeing how um, the media, both like the far right media, the mainstream uh, right media, and also the mainstream like liberal media too. I'd be really, really scared of how they are going to portray her and who, whose voices are going to, whose voices are going to be highlighted in the conversation. It's certainly, it's not going to be trans voices that are going to be highlighted. Unfortunately, Carly, as you know, better than me, like you know, trans sports journalists, trans athletes are like trying to get their voices out there and said they're not. Uh, sorry, instead, it's not that they are not. Instead, the mainstream liberal and right media are not choosing to prioritize their voices over cisgender voices, sadly. Um, so I think, unfortunately, that USA Swimming would choose to see uh, Thomas's victory as further at further proof of the need to have much stricter um, gender, cisgender and transgender um, controls. And I think the NCAA could potentially bow down to even more pressure to adopt really discriminatory and awful policies. Um, I obviously don't want that to be the case, but that's, that's what I fear. But I hope that she's successful and I hope that she wins for her own sake. And I would just be really wary of how people choose to respond to that. Dr. Mellis, thank you for joining us in the Transporter Room. And as always, we're also going to keep catching you on End of Sports. Thank you so much, Carly. Your podcast is amazing. And I continue to learn so much from you and your guests. So thank you for all this work that you're doing. And we are so lucky to like have, have you talking about these issues. So thank you. Okay, we're going to beam you back down to your Sinus College right now. And you're hearing the red alert claxon. You know what that means. It's time to take a break, give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, a different trans athlete makes her debut this week. In a week, that will be a lot of firsts, not just for her, but for her school. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And our special guest on a week where we've had a few of them is someone who's making their debut on the pitch this week. As you're listening to this, two collegiate athletes who are trans are beginning their quest for conference championships. Isaac Hennig sprint specialist in swimming at Yale University, and Leah Thomas, middle distance and distance specialist at the University of Pennsylvania. Both of them began Ivy League championship competition at Harvard today. And both of them have been at times at the center of this growing storm and debate over transgender inclusion in athletics, collegiate in particular. But there is another trans athlete who's also making her move 
this week. Sweetbriar College, a small all-women's school in Virginia, opens their season at Brevard on Saturday morning, 10 a.m. sharp. And one of the people who will be out there is a five foot eight inch defender from Tacanic, Pennsylvania, named Erica Smith. Erica Smith is a trans woman with a goal of being a two sport athlete for a team known as the Vixens. I can say it's the coolest nickname probably in all of collegiate sport. But Smith also has blazed a trail in another way at this tiny school. She's the school's first transgender student. She's a student and an athlete with a story to tell. And we are privileged and pleased to bring her here to tell it. From Sweetbriar College, Virginia, I give you Erica Smith. We're beaming you up to the transporter room. Energize. This isn't the most Isley Cantina. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> were, you ex- were you expecting size noodles? Were I you- mean, <laughs> look, you know, I, I, I just gave up on having expectations at this point because I'll either never meet them or like I'll just set unrealistic ones for myself. So we'll just we just see how it goes. And one day at a time. <laughs> Well, I can tell you right out of the gate, I'm, we're going to have some fun in this interview. I can <laughs> see that. All. I'm just wondering, have you seen the book of Boba Fett yet? Have I seen it? Every single Wednesday, myself and three of my teammates are sitting in their dorm room and we are watching it and spending the next two hours afterwards yelling why the Internet's wrong about all their criticisms and how we love it so much. And then we get deeper and deeper into the look. And then look, it's it's a thing. <laughs> we're all nerds here. <laughs> well, we're nerds here, so this is great. I'm just wondering, how are you? Let's just go into it right now. This is this is unusual. Starting let's do with it. sci-fi, let's find. Let's start with the sci-fi. What what problems do you have with the criticisms of it? By the way, I don't understand why anybody's criticizing it. That's my view. There are two two criticisms that we found that we were just like, that makes no sense. Because one of them is like, oh. That Boba Fett, he's why is he being so weak? Like that, this isn't Boba Fett. Like he's not ex- imbuing strength. And it's like one, like this is the most technically on screen we've seen Boba Fett ever. And so you can't just say, oh, like this isn't what he would do. Who knows what he would do? He said two lines before, so like he and and then it, it's like you're missing the entire point of hey, sh- like he's not trying to lead, like repeat the process of leading through fear and threatening others because when boba threatens you there's a reason for it and he it's not an empty threat but he's also recognizes the value of loyalty through respect so it's like that's you know especially as a as a veteran i'm like this that makes total sense for me um but a lot of people are upset and then obviously like the mod stuff like the the bikes and the colors and me and my one friend emma she's a field hockey player that play that um i play with and uh we talked for hours about how it was so cool that these things were because like you know they're they're acknowledging generational change in star wars but just one week from now in a galaxy not so far away you open a lacrosse season what's the book on that team from brevard what's the book on them I mean, so all we know right now is that 
Um, we, we saw some of the film from last year. And so we're uh, lacrosse and field hockey, the two teams I'm a part of, we're not in ODAC anymore. We're in CSAC. Um, okay. Whereas the, the school's still part of the school still in ODAC. So this will be one of our first times playing against a lot of these teams. And so we're, we're trying to look at films and trying to not only see what they're kind of doing, but also adjusting with um, the idea that like the book on, on Sweetbriar lacrosse is being, is being rewritten right now. Um, you know, we brought, we have a brand new head coach that came in halfway through last semester. Uh, half the team is, has either never played or just played another sport. Um, and we're small. So we're like for the first week or two, we've been working on not only like, like we're establishing our new team dynamics, but also learning some of us learning the new basics and then also incorporating it into a game and, also like trying to feel out these, um, you know, new coach, new teammates, new, new dynamic and what's going on. So it's all happening at the same time as trying to prep for our, our new game. So honestly, like I am not an expert on lacrosse and I have no idea how it's going to go, but I do know that, um, we, in my opinion, as somebody who has served for years in the military, has been a squad leader, has played in other sports, that we are at such a good place as a team right now, team dynamic-wise, team support. And I think like any day of the week, if you have, even if you have a team that doesn't have maybe expertise level skills, if they work together as a team, they're going to do good things. And so that's what we're kind of hoping for going into this weekend and to try and kind of like test, it's kind of like testing the waters a little bit. So, so yeah, I don't know. Our book's still kind of being written. That's not the only book being written here. Your story is going in some new chapters as well. Erica Smith, class of 2024, Sweetbriar College in Virginia, all women's school. Um, I talked to some people about Sweetbriar and they said, oh, it's a debutante vault. Y yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Army veteran, trans woman, Sweetbriar vixen. These three things don't exactly go together. <laughs> How did you get here? It's um, a weird... Uh, explanation essentially in I graduated high school in 2009 and I was dating somebody at the time that was a year older than me and they decided to go to this small little all women's college called Sweetbriar College and I remember at the time like in my misguided ways in my mind like oh why would you want to go to an all women's college and she was trying to explain to me like Oh, but like the environment and how it's set up. And I'm like, no, like this. And so I, what for, uh, one of the dances, she invited me down. And so I came down to visit and like, it is such a, an experience driving up, going through the gate, stepping on campus and like experiencing all of these people and this weird community of just like people being people it, it it's it was such a like 
especially for a young person who I didn't even know what the word trans was, but I was just like, oh, I have these weird thoughts in my head. I'm not going to talk about them to anyone. Um, all of a sudden, I'm like, why do I feel comfortable here like that? Whereas I'd never felt comfortable elsewhere. And so then fast forward many years later, through trying to go to school the first time, through the military, joining combat arms, um, then uh, getting out and being like, okay, I'm going to go to college. I went to a place called Marywood University up in Scranton, Catholic University. I had a, like, it was all right. Um, I graduated with like two degrees and three minors. And uh, that's where I did a lot of my thesis work. And then I started, um, that's when I started my work with my therapist and transitioning and getting comfortable with it. And I was supposed to start PA school, physician assistant school. However, when I came out to the school and even though I was accepted like a week before getting there, they found this like really obscure reason not to allow me to attend. And it broke me. And I'm like, well, what am I was, what am I going to do? And my therapist was like, well, you know, I think you'd be a good counselor. Why don't you apply to their counseling program? So I did. And I like was in there for about a year. Well, yeah, about a year, even doing like internship work. But um, I was not what they wanted in the sense of uh, they didn't like not only that I was um, trans, but also that I was kind of coming in like with a different perspective on mental health of, Hey, like mental health isn't separate from physical health. And like, we can't like this idea that we just resign people and decide, yep, these brains are broken. Like we don't even know what a normal brain is, let alone. So why do we have a book full of brains, all these brains that are disordered? How do we like, there's something we're missing. And so you cause enough ripples that people just get tired of it. And I felt the winds changing and I was like, ah, yes, I, I, am recognizing people are now starting, professors are now starting to unnecessarily retaliate or target me. Um, and the school, I tried to address with the school and they're like, it, unfortunately it sits in their policy. They can do that because it's a private Christian college. So I was very depressed one night and I was like, I need to figure out somewhere else to go. I was looking and I'm like, you know what? If I'm in the lowest point of my life right now, why don't I just put, shoot my shot? And Sweetbriar randomly came into my mind as a place where I was like, where can I go to just start over, start fresh, go to med school? And I looked up and they didn't have a trans policy published and they had no like prior trans women attending. Um, there were trans men that have like transitioned after but they've never had a trans woman matriculate here and seek a degree. And so me being me and looking up the research, the, uh, like in the army, if you want to know something, you look up a, a rule or regulation and that tells you the boundaries. So I looked up rules and regulations and I was like, all right, if I'm going to try this, like I'm going to try this. And I submitted my application and uh, I got my birth certificate changed from uh, male to female because I was already undergoing treatment and I was my, my, you know, my doctor was like, yeah, absolutely. And so that was the only criteria you had to have a birth certificate saying you were female. The vast majority of 18 year olds do not have any opportunity to change their birth certificate yet. So 
I just, you know, didn't even really address it, got in, applied, got accepted. And through the whole process, I was like open, like, Hey, I'm trans. I don't want to hide this. I don't want it to be like this uh, thing that all of a sudden you guys are like, Oh, you snuck in here. And you know, I wanted to avoid that, especially because I was a big advocate at the time. And I was going and doing speeches at places and writings. The new Dean of the school was like, yeah, you know, welcome aboard. And, um, started attending and it was not what I expected. Uh, and it's been a roller coaster. It's a crazy roller coaster, but, um, a wonderful and difficult experience all at the same time. Now, what year did all this start? Um, I applied, uh, I believe it was, it, it actually was the month before COVID started. So you went through this entire whirlwind. Your experience in the military, combat medic, mm -hmm. going through the things you went through at Marywood, then coming out. I mean, you've had a whirlwind last few years here. Yeah, I think like October 2019 was when I came out publicly because I had been on HRT for about seven months prior, but I was in that mindset of, oh, I'm just going to see if this helps. And I was kind of hoping it didn't because I wanted any excuse to not acknowledge that I was trans, that kind of thing. So, but I, it got to a point where I could no longer hide it. And I remember sitting in my therapist's office one, one day and we were talking about something and she was like, hang on, hold the phone. She's like, you just smiled when you were talking about something. And I was like, no, because contextually before that, like I was well known for not having any facial expressions. I didn't smile. I didn't do anything to the point where like, even my mom would be like, why don't you ever smile anymore? What happened to my little kid that smiled? And I'm like, I don't know. Just don't feel anything. And I had stone face and like, but then all of a sudden I was like smiling. If anyone wants to know the trick or the, the solution to preventing people who are transitioning or trans having like depression, suicidal thoughts, stuff like that. Like healthcare helps, but having a strong support system is night and day helpful because once I came here, I surprisingly got that. Everyone knew my name somehow. Um, and like, I still have people I walk around and they're like, Oh, Hey, you're Erica. And I'm like, hi, who are you? Like, <laughs> what's your name? And they're like, Oh, I like read your, your Instagram or like read your, your, um, advocacy stuff. Can we like go get lunch? Like talk. Can I, can we be, I had someone the other day walk into my friend's room was like, Oh, Hey, you're Erica. Like we're going to be friends. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I like, I'm, I'll be friends with anyone. And you wouldn't think that would be the case, but you know, surprising, unsurprisingly, when you go to an institution, especially an all women's institution that focuses on you know, community and supporting each other, all of a sudden people start recognizing how crappy they get treated in the, in the outside world. And so anyone that's part of other marginalized communities are all are welcomed because they just want you to be a part of them. And I've, they, I've learned so much from them, even being 10 years older, they've taught me so much. Um, they've done so much for me. I had my team captain of my field hockey team drive me to my um, 
appointment to get bottom surgery in Philadelphia, seven hours away, stay with me in the hotel, and then two more team captains coming and picking me up, driving me back, and taking care of me like every other day. And they didn't have to. No, like no one was requiring them to, but they were doing it because they were like, Erica, you're our teammate. This is what we do. Erica, you're one of us. Like we take care of our, our team. And like, that was that like realization of this is what I've been, been searching for and missing is that feeling of belonging and community and just feeling like I was a part of something other than myself. And that's really like, I don't know where I would be without the field hockey team or or lacrosse team right now. Like it's, you know, I've had such, you know, struggles in one area, but also without their support and their kindness and friendship, like, I don't know, like it would have been a very different outcome. You've been a member of teams, but still had to fight through all the eligibility stuff with the NCAA. And now you're eligible. So this is the first action you've gotten to see as a Sweetbriar Vixen coming up. Yes. Um, I didn't get my eligibility until I believe it was October of last last year, last semester. So a few months ago. So in the interim, I was like allowed to unofficially practice. Um, I was, so I was practicing, doing scrimmaging, all this kind of stuff, but any official games I couldn't play in. Um, and it, what really hurt is like, I would go to these games and I had a uniform, I had a Jersey number and I couldn't wear it because my coach was like, we can't risk doing anything that could jeopardize your eligibility. And so like, you know, watching all of like my team walk out during like the beginning of the game and be introduced and just like, cool, like I'm here. But, um, now coming up next year for field hockey, you know, uh, when go, as long as I pass tryouts that we all have to go through, um, then we'll see. But like for lacrosse, it was, yep. You know, eligible. I'm ready to go. I am, you know, have a Jersey number. I have on the roster. I'm a, I'm officially NCAA part of the team. I'm excited because I have worked so hard and so many people have worked so hard to help me get to this point to just put on the Vixen uniform and just play with my teammates and to help contribute to if we win or lose, you know, but to just officially be all a part of the team instead of just like part of the team in a way, if that makes sense. One thing that struck me, it was how your team rallied around you Mm -hmm. to help you get eligibility. Now, juxtapose that to a situation you may have read recently. Yep. What are your thoughts on the treatment that Leah Thomas has gotten over these last few months? Um, I mean, one, I would say there's a lot of, um, you know, the equivalency of armchair generals getting involved that don't need to, that have very little understanding of not only, um, the purpose and point of athletics and sports, how athletics and sports work, how the body and biology work, and also like 
how like what what is and is not an actual issue it just shows how little we don't actually care about women's sports we care about preserving this glass ceiling and this false idea of what we want women to represent and be because like the point of of sports and athletics is to compete and show who's the best and if you are a diehard i want to support women's sports i want to try to better it and give them the best opportunities what does going after a literal handful of trans people that are not doing anything towards them do to promote any female playing a sport when there's very little resources very little money not enough coaches not enough training poor facilities and poor opportunities to play like that doesn't address any of those issues and so then coming all the way back to leah thomas one of my best friends is a swimmer and i we were talking about it she looked at like leah's times at that like she broke and she was like leah broke like she didn't like do crazy times and if you look she's like and if you look at her times before she lost so much time on it and there's a very well documented research study done in 2015 by actually a trans medical physicist that shows that the level of athlete you were before transition is correlated to the level of athlete you are after so if you're top five male so you know arbitrary top five male cross-country runners then you are going to lose time but when you'll never be able to be top five male but you'll probably be in like top five top ten female because that's who you were before and so they are losing we are losing like performance you know as well as i do i cannot run as much i remember why can't i open a jar of mayonnaise anymore like i (laughs) used to be able to do that (laughs) <laughs> so like we we know it because we or experience the, it or in the case or like in my case i i talk about this a little bit is that recovery times mm-hmm. no recovery times how yep. they're three they're like two or three days longer depending on the event in 100%. a lot of cases oh god yes i'm just yeah. wondering the ncaa regulations have changed mm-hmm. you you okay from that head shake you're not liking this. No, mostly because the regulations needed to change because they weren't specific to begin with. Um, and I also have a little bit of inside tea and you might've already talked about this, but like um, I talked to a few people that were a part of that conference and also like knew about like, were the ones that they it's like, Oh, like they were conference ended that Thursday. I think it was a Thursday. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they wake up the next morning and they're like, wait a second, where did this decision from the board of governors come from? And they spent the next few days of that conference, many people speaking out against it saying, Hey, you, where did this come from? What, what evidence do you have? Why didn't you talk to anybody? Um, my athletic trainer here, um, Devin Serrano, I, w- I got permission to use her name. One, she's phenomenal. Um, and she was actually voted Virginia's bet, like top athletic trainer, um, last year. And she is presenting a case study of treating myself and one of our other trans male athletes from a few years ago in July at the athletic trainer con- uh, conference in, um, 
Philadelphia, ironically, on my birthday. So, uh, and, and she's like trying to show people how to like medically fill in these gaps and what, like what it actually takes. And she talks a lot about like how our recovery times and our injury likeliness is very much, is a lot higher compared to like my trans male counterparts. And like, we're trying to figure out what's going on because NCAA doesn't have a, a policy for people that undergo surgery. They say, oh, uh, testosterone suppression medication. I can't produce testosterone anymore, so I don't take it. My testosterone levels are really, really low. Um, so do I have to adhere to this policy? Do I have a different policy? Where do I fall in? Like, it, it does, so it just shows. In short, all the things that Australian advocate Kirsty Miller talks about. Yep. In, re- in regards to andro- androgen deprivation. Mm-hmm. It, it just shows like the lack of actually understanding not only are the medical, our medical community um, that treats people like us, because the reality is there aren't that many. Everyone thinks there's like, you know, you throw a rock and you find someone who's trans. No, it's 0.06% of the population. And that, and then you break that into trans male and female. So like, there aren't that many of us, which means that there aren't that many people that treat us. So like uh, most of the, the medical data is all like theorized. What's it going to be like for you to step on that field this coming weekend? <laughs> How much of all those experiences are, do you think are going to be with you in your mind when you take that field Saturday? Um, hmm. I think there will always be in my mind moments where I have that little internal critic saying, Hey, this is what people are saying or people think, because that's why you wrote these things or talked about these things. And, you know, if you do well, then they're just going to say that you did well because you're a quote unquote man. And if you don't do well enough, they're going to use that as justification to not be on the field. And I try really hard not to have that voice. So I'd like to say I'm not going to bring any of that on the field and just play the game. But that's not a luxury that we as trans athletes often have because if I score a goal or if I, you know, have a good save, then a lot of times it's going, people will generally tend to be like, Oh, it's because they're a guy. So I don't even, I can't even own my achievements. And then I'm like, should I hold back? And, but that's disservice to my team because my team's giving 110% and so should I. So I'll always be fighting with that in my head of, you know, do I want to take this risk and take this away from my team? Or do I want to hold back and take this away from my team? And I'm hoping that I'm able to keep a lot of that at bay while being able to play. And I'm hoping that just being on there with my team will remind me why I play to begin with. Um, Because at the end of the day, 
it's not about me. It's not about anyone else. It's about my team and being there for them. Because if I'm not going to be there for my team, then why should they be there for me? From the sounds of it, it seems like that there's, there's a whole athletic department, in many ways, a whole school and a student body that's been there for you. Yeah. I'm Erica, very, good. very fortunate. Erica, good luck this coming Saturday and good luck. This Thank season. you. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're someone I'm definitely going to want back <laughs> in this forum. Sure. I'll do whatever. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what we got. And, and, and since we're getting more into the fact finding missions here at the transporter room, we're building away teams. I know one away team we've got to do. We've got to do. Sweetbriar College. I'm sending. We're sending away teams around. No red shirts. We're <laughs> going. We're going to send somebody. We're going to beam you back down because you have a season to get ready for us. Thanks to Erica Smith for being on on the transporter room this weekend. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, listening in, downloading us. And if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we do here at the transporter room, please leave a message on our Twitter page. Leave a message on our Facebook page. Leave a message at our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper and steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week. <laughs>